0: Perhaps later in the morning when the sun was up and had warmed them, they would begin to talk or just say the things they remembered to be sure they were there, to be absolutely certain that things were safe in them. Montag felt the slow stir of words, the slow simmer. and When it came to his turn, what could he say? What could he offer on a day like this to make the trip a little easier? On this week's episode of Love in the Ruins, we're going to look at the poet John Donne. John Donne is one of my favorite poets, and so this will be a little challenging to just sort of keep it on point and focused on just a handful of poems here. But John Donne is born in 1572. He's born to a Roman Catholic family of, I would say, modest means. Uh, Most of his life, Donne is basically trying more or less desperately to cobble a life together. So he is by no means wealthy. His father dies when he's only four years old and he grows up in a Roman Catholic family. So growing up Catholic in England at the end of the 16th century means that you are in the wrong version of Christianity. And so it means, among other things, that you can go to university, but you can't actually graduate <laughs> with a degree from university. So John Donne attends Oxford University uh, for a few years at least and yet does not get a degree of completion because of his Catholicism, leaving him on the wrong side of sort of uh, the accepted um, legal institutions actually, and ultimately his brother, a, um, a devout Roman Catholic, is going to be arrested for his Catholicism, for sort of a scandal of his practicing Catholicism, and his brother is going to die in prison uh, during that time of arrest. So the Catholicism issue is a, is a big one with Dunn, and then it becomes even more pronounced when he converts to Anglicanism, when he converts to Protestantism, some will say, you know, suspiciously because they'll, or they'll say it skeptically, I guess would be the way, cynically maybe, um, that he converts um, maybe just because he needs a job. And he is incredibly gifted, talented, intelligent, um, but he is regularly broke. He is married to a young woman named Anne, uh, which he married sort of by eloping without her father's knowing it. and they are stone-cold broke. He tells her father about it months after the secret wedding. His father has him imprisoned for marrying his teenage daughter. She was 17 at the time. Um... It's just a lot of challenges follow the life of John Donne. And so by the time, when he's a little bit older, he becomes an Anglican, and then shortly thereafter becomes an Anglican priest. Uh, Many people think this is sort of for mercenary reasons, because he needs to pay the bills. And as a Catholic, he really just couldn't be employed in so many different things, particularly, though, his gifts um, of oratory, his gifts of writing and thinking, um, which were so sort of disposed towards some of the The requisite skills of the church mean that some people are suspicious about his conversion. But if you were to actually read John Donne's writing, and more importantly, if you were to read his sermons, if you were to read his sermons, you would know that this is not a cynical move. Or if it was at first, it is deeply felt. He becomes the dean of St. Paul's Cathedral in London and one of the most well-known preachers of his time. I would say maybe the top two or three preachers, along with people like Lancelot Andrews and, and folks like that. Uh, unbelievable sermons. Uh, and so it's pretty amazing because John Dunn is usually taught in high schools or in colleges uh, for his erotic poetry, his love poetry, because it was sort of scandalous and it's sort of brilliant genius paradoxically sort of flexible like incredibly fascinating brilliant person um, sending up satirizing um, pushing the envelope and in his youth writing a lot of love poetry some of which is way beyond the edge <laughs> for the time period and and so he was sort of famous in his own circles for for these poems when he was young but then the religious poetry that comes a little bit later in his life and then after that again, the uh, the prose writing the prose writing is some of the best prose in English so the prose writing and then the sermons I would count among those 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 um, the category of prose writing uh, the sermons are absolutely beautiful and that's where I truly fell in love with with dear old Dunn. so I am going to try to present a little bit of his of his writing um, which is again very difficult to do he is now considered uh, he had fallen out of favor uh, he was So he was really well-known in his time, uh, especially as being a preacher. And then he, he basically sort of disappeared. You know, poetry went in a totally different direction than his style. And so he fell out of favor and almost fell completely out of um, sort of people's you know purview when it comes to the English poetry tradition for a couple hundred years. Um, I mean, really, it wasn't until almost late 1800s and into the early even 1900s his prose wasn't even rediscovered really until around 1919 so I mean he, his, his own sort of poetic sort of fame disappearance and now fame again is also its own fascinating story but Dunn cannot be understood apart from his context and his context at 16th, 17th, 16th century and then 17th, early 17th century England is a context in which the world has gone off its rocker and this is why it's sort of fun to talk about Dunn in 2020. Um, the world in the 16th century is a world that is, is rife now with what we would call philosophical skepticism, uh, with people just wondering if anyone can know anything at all. Where is the truth? How how can we trust anyone in, a, in positions of authority? This skeptical crisis about whether or not we can know anything and how can we trust anyone institutional crisis um, is brought upon by or is brought out by several different factors. Uh, maybe the most obvious would be the Reformation itself. You have to remember at this time, you know, especially in England, uh, you know, people decades earlier were told, you know, sort of that the Catholic Church is their their way of making sure that they are saved, that they have salvation, that they are part of the body of Christ. And then, depending on what monarch happens to be in charge of England, all of a sudden everything is kind of thrown back up again, and it's like, oh no, actually the Catholic Church, you know, according to Luther, is like the whore of Babylon, is the Antichrist, you know? and if you're not Protestant, you're not saved. And so now it's like the ordinary person's experience of religious authority in the Christian Church being completely divided against itself Precipitating wars of religion, as they're called later on, um, is it's hard to exaggerate how disorienting that would be. The very foundations of the truth, the the, the structures of authority, the clergy—I mean, the people that you would entrust the care of your souls—now you're wondering, wait, wait, if they are disagreeing, calling one another sort of the antichrist or the you know the worst thing ever, or you know, or a fraud or a fake, um, you know. Where is the ordinary person supposed to find their security in a moment like that? So the Reformation causes an absolute crisis of knowing, of a skeptical crisis about foundations, about whether or not the truth is even available to people if those who are trained in the truth can so vehemently disagree with one another about some of the most essential truths, right, especially concerning faith and salvation. Well, add to that picture, (laughs) not that you need to, but add to that picture uh, a few other key factors. One in which, for example, um, the cosmology of the time has dramatically shifted, right? Um, Sort of the the heliocentric vision of reality is also fairly new in the water, at least, again, for the, the common person's experience of things. And so you'll see tons of writing, including Dunn's own poetry, talking about the heavens being shaken, the, you know, the planets themselves being out of joint. And this is because just scientific understandings about the way in which the, the planets move and a way in which the Earth is no longer conceived, at least at the popular level, to be the center of, of that reality, of that cosmic reality. Um, this is seen as a a mirror of the disorder in the human sphere. So looking up, you see the disorder of the heavenly spheres. Oh my gosh, we've been, at least again at the popular level, we've been understanding the way that the the heavens rotate um, wrongly. Again, a fundamental foundational sort of orientation about truth and understanding and our place in the world, right? And again, I mean, you could do a whole history of science thing and show that there are several people who sort of knew that that wasn't necessarily the case and and that you know Galileo etc you know was not the shock that it, it it struck some people as nor was it the danger right that it struck many people as and there's really important reading and there's a lot of good research that's been done to show that but again at the popular level at the popular level, like think 2020, just think about our own times. At the popular level, it was like the news cycle was like, ah, <laughs> the heavens are not what we thought they were. Everything is out of joint. Everything is overturned. We're Everything is disoriented, right? And people believed that as the heavens went, so went the soul. As the soul went, so went the heaven. That That the human person and that human society was a microcosm of the macrocosm that was the heavenly spheres and the order above, right? that the world, since it was all designed by God, was a coherence, was an absolute coherence, and that you could read, um, almost stronger than a metaphor, um, you know, analogously, um, you could read the heavens and you could read, you know, an individual as a macrocosm and a microcosm, and that there was genuine connection there between the hierarchies, the great chain of being, that God had designed everything so unbelievably carefully that everything was sort of fitted in its precise place, And so truly, for for the popular mind, for the heavens to be out of place, (laughs) for them to be out of their place, um, really did have this like almost existential ripple effect down to every other order of, of placidness, including the placidness of the soul, or even of the nation, of society, of the home, of any number of things. So so cosmology is contributing to this the reformation is contributing but this is also the age of discovery and the age of discovery means that that england and its and its understanding or western europe and its understanding is now starting to knowingly collide with other people in other places in the world that were not known in this way and these other people other places in the world have different claims about reality claims about religion or, or, or ritual claims about you know what 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 is true or what is moral or what is good um, claims that seem to fundamentally in some cases collide with uh, subvert uh, again disorient <laughs> um, those who assume sort of the western sort of european mindset was the one that was going and uh and aside from maybe some peculiar sort of exotic you know stories that came from From Asia, um, you know, like that—that basically Western Europe was the sort of center of, or at least was was a stable locus of true meaning, right? And so the Age of Exploration now also disrupts this because now there are complete competing claims about truth, about about God, about all sorts of things coming from now, um, you know, other cultures and other places. If that's not enough, <laughs> wait, there's more. Is <laughs> like a talk show? Like, no, game. it is a talk show. No, it's like a game show. Um, if that's not enough, um, then you also have the expansion of education at the time beyond the elite um, with the establishment of grammar schools for the middle class. Okay, now when education now is starting to, to sort of go, and this, you know, on the back of the Reformation, the, the move to vernacular languages in order to translate the Bible, uh, the recovery at fontes of texts, right, for just the Renaissance movement, the Christian humanist movement, um, recovering how to, you know, speak, read, write everything Hebrew, Greek, etc., Latin, of course. Um, Now, all of a sudden, education itself is expanding beyond the elites, beyond the sort of the noble or the aristocratic class, and is now becoming uh, more and more prevalent amongst uh, the middle class. And and truly, you know, I mean, it can be exaggerated, but William Tyndale's uh, oft repeated phrase that the plowboy, right? The plowboy, the common sort of, you know, field hand is going to be able to read the Bible better than this or that priest because it's going to be fresh and it's going to be clear and they're going to be coming to it without bias or prejudice. But but the idea that a, that a plowboy could read was already an assumption about the transformation of education being spread to the middle and even potentially to the lower classes. So the shifting in that now means many, many, many more people have access to truth claims that were previously more or less relegated to you know sort of a scribal kind of class a religious class and then a, certainly an elite or aristocratic class that could afford to be educated that's also being disrupted and so that means more and more different s- sorts of people from different sorts of bloodlines like not just noble blood uh, are starting to think write read write uh, contribute to the public discourse that is also destabilizing things as you might imagine but wait, Johnny, but wait, Johnny, there's more. Um, So uh, there's also, in the 15th century, um, the War of the Roses. And and with this, the gradual curtailment of the nobility's um, feudal power and the rise of a centralized sort of government structure, let's say, under the monarch in London, for example, if we're talking about the English context. Um, But the rise of nation states, the rise of centralized government, means that there has become this sort of monolithic claim to be the center and source of at least coercive power right the means of the state uh, the sword of the state as it were away from sort of a more spread out spread around i don't know if you watch like the last kingdom or something where where like a king is there but like the nobles are almost right there as to power and as to importance. Or if you just read like any of Shakespeare's uh, history plays, that just shows you I'm an English major, uh, watch any of Shakespeare's history plays is what theater person would say. Um, but if you're familiar with Shakespeare's history plays, then you also have this sort of uh, shift, this dramatic shift. I absolutely adore the history plays. But this dramatic shift away from the, uh, the incredible importance of nobles in governing uh, England... To this sort of more and more con- congealed, sort of monolithic power source, you know, in the figure of let's say Richard II, um, and so that that shift as well means that you know centralized uh, government uh, is reorienting things, and then the claims of that of that king or of that family or of that particular locus of power, you say, might be a stabilizing force, but for example, if you're in England. And it's someone like Henry the Eighth, and you know England is literally like you know going this direction, that direction. He's killing this wife, you know, um, taking that new wife. Um, you know, deciding religious matters based on sort of a personal need to produce an heir because he is now the locus of all authority and power, that's disorienting, right? Then it's like Henry VIII versus the Pope, you know? It's like, wait, doesn't the Pope know the truth? Why? Why Now we have to believe Henry VIII knows the truth even though he's just sort of, you know, creepy? (laughs) There's other ways to say that. Um, So, like, all of that contributes to this incredible sort of buildup of absolute skeptical crisis as to who can know and where can it be known and who knows this and how do we trust them for that um you know it's like we got copernicus and Brahe and kepler and galileo and and that's and that's that's awesome but that's 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 a little (laughs) disorienting (laughs) and they're still trying to sort that out and we got luther and calvin and the reformation and henry viii and we you know and and now queen elizabeth you know let's say in the time of Dunn. and and you just have this world that that people are beginning to, to more commonly ask the question what even is the truth and where is the truth and it's not the kind of nihilistic skepticism maybe that we would entertain in 2020 but the existential side of it like the the exhaustion the 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 frustration the anger the confusion the i don't know like where my place is in the world that so many people are feeling these days is not dissimilar okay it's at least similar to to a lot of what was being felt at the time in the 16th and early 17th century especially in england Um, And so, you know, that just has to be on the table. Because Dunn tackles this in his poetry. For example, in the first anniversary, also known as the or An Anatomy of the World. I mean, exactly what I'm talking about An Anatomy of the World, right? So let's dissect the issue. He says, for example, and new philosophy calls all in doubt. The element of fire is quite put out. The sun is lost, right? Like that. It's just such beautiful language, though. The sun is lost, and the earth, and no man's wit, like the heliocentric, like the displacement. Like, where did the sun go? The sun is lost, and the earth, and no man's wit can well direct him where to look for it. And freely men confess that this world's spent. I mean, that that is 2020. Freely men confess that this world is spent. When in the planets and the firmament they seek so many new, they see that this is crumbled out again to his atomies. Tis all in pieces, all coherence gone, all just supply and all relation. Prince, subject, father, son, are things forgot. For every man alone thinks he hath got to be a phoenix. And that then can be none of that kind of which he is, but he. So this perfectly, I hope, summarizes everything I was just talking about. Everything is out of joint. The world has been broken into a million pieces. Uh, you know, Order and family, all of these things, these, these, these understandings of role, responsibility, um, are all dislocated and now every individual is like standing alone thinking that they need alone to carry the weight of reality alone because they can't tell who they can trust anymore or where the truth might actually be sort of reliably found because institutions are completely either dissolving or being completely reformed and changed. Um, And this is in the midst of all that. And so the ordinary person is all completely out of joint, and the world itself feels like it is done, like it is spent. So <laughs> in that context, John Donne lives and breathes and writes. And the first kinds of things he writes in his, in his younger days is, is really good love, love poetry, love poetry, excuse me, Um, Really good love poetry, and I say really good. (laughs) If you read the pleasant love poems, there are very dark and disturbing love poems that John Donne writes that are unbelievably cynical and crass and and uh, you know just flights of paradox or um, or I mean maybe it wouldn't strike us. I know it does strike us this because I've taught this to my students at, at UCI in the past. Um, and it does strike them this way like oh my gosh this is like creepy this is messed up stuff so like Dunn's range um, is considerable uh, I'm going to read uh, what I find to be some of the more beautiful <laughs> of the love poems <laughs> just because I did have to pick and so um, I did pick some that you know are more pleasant uh, as to what they're actually saying as well as to how they're saying it Um but I, I don't want to sugarcoat it. I mean, if you read Dunn's erotic poetry, it, uh, it could take a dark, dark turn. It could take a really despairing turn. It could take a really cynical turn. Um, and oftentimes, you know, it's clearly he's like trying to use the poem to seduce a woman, right? He's trying to like flatter her uh, into, a, you know, into, into his clutches, as it were. And, and, it, and, and usually it's like, you know, it's tongue in cheek. And it's, you know, it's super hyperbolic. And it's, it's all these sorts of rhetorical performances. Um, but all of that is to say, his the diversity and range of, of even his approach as a poet and as a rhetorician is because he's in this world in which everything's all over the place. like everything is all over the place. And so you know the the mental itself, right in the, the existential, um, fragmentary, uh, paradoxical, self-defeating, self-disputing, I mean, you you get so many of the sort of, kind of glistening cracks of the skeptical moment that England is experiencing and Europe is experiencing at this time uh, shining through in almost any done poem that you pick up and so it may be that the ones I selected which are sort of more um, sort of pleasing in some ways um, they might obscure that fact so I don't want to obscure that fact uh, because if you read all of his poetry which is a considerable thing to do um, you'll see that, that, that there is quite a bit there now, there is quite a bit there and it is difficult poetry, so um, I'm going to just pick ones that I think might strike the ear a little more sensibly than others. Uh, the first one I'll read is called The Sun Rising, and it is uh, one of his love poems, and and it is like two lovers in bed in the morning, and the sun's coming up. Um, Christian audience, let's say they're married, <laughs> uh, the sun's coming up in the morning. And, uh, and the speaker's sort of looking out their window, and he says this. Busy old fool, unruly son, why dost thou thus through windows and through curtains call on us? Must to thy motions lovers' seasons run? Saucy, pedantic wretch, go chide late schoolboys and sour prentices. Go tell court huntsmen that the king will ride. Call country ants to harvest offices. Love all alike, no season knows, nor climb. Nor hours, days, months, which are the rags of time. Thy beams so reverent and strong, why shouldst thou think? I could eclipse and cloud them with a wink but that I would not lose her sight so long. If her eyes have not blinded thine, look, and tomorrow late tell me, whether both the Indias of spice and mine be where thou left'st them, or lie here with me. Ask for those kings whom thou sawst yesterday, and thou shalt hear, all here in one bed lay. She's all states, and all princes I, Nothing else is. Princes do but play us. Compared to this, all honors mimic. All wealth, alchemy. Thou, son, art half as happy as we, in that the world's contracted thus. Thine age asks ease, and since thy duties be to warm the world, that's done in warming us. Shine here to us, And thou art everywhere. This bed, thy center is. These walls, thy sphere. Just, (laughs) just so good. I mean, so he's like the world's out of joint. All right. Well, then the world is going to revolve around this love. (laughs) Like that's the sun's new center. That's the new cosmology. Is us. It's, it's such a rebellion against the moment, you know, and it's such just, a, fine, if we can't know anything, then all I can know is, is this moment here with us, right? Yeah, it's just brilliant. Uh, the next one I'll read is called A Valediction Forbidding Mourning." As virtuous men pass mildly away and whisper to their souls to go, while some of their sad friends do say, the breath goes now. And some say, no. So let us melt and make no noise. No tear floods nor sigh tempests move. T'were profanation of our joys to tell the laity our love. Moving of the earth brings harms and fears. Men reckon what it did and meant. But trepidation of the spheres, though greater far, is innocent. Dull Sublunary lover's love whose soul is sense cannot admit absence because it doth remove those things which elemented it. But we, by a love so much refined that ourselves know not what it is, inter-assured of the mind, care less eyes, lips, and hands to miss. Our two souls, therefore, which are one, though I must go, endure not yet a breach, but an expansion, like gold to airy thinness beat. If they be two, they are two, so as stiff twin compasses are two. Thy soul, the fixed foot, makes no show to move, but doth if the other do. And though it in the center sit, Yet when the other far doth roam, it leans and hearkens after it, and grows erect as that comes home. Such wilt thou be to me, who must, like the other foot, obliquely run. Thy firmness makes my circle just, and makes me end where I begun. The next one is called The Good Morrow. I wonder by my troth what thou and I did till we loved. Were we not weaned till then, but sucked on country pleasures childishly? Or snorted we in the seven sleepers' den? Twas so, but this all pleasure's fancies be. If ever any beauty I did see, which I desired and got was but a dream of thee and now good morrow to our waking souls which watch not one another out of fear for love all love of other sights controls and makes one little room and everywhere let sea discoverers to new worlds have gone let maps to other worlds on worlds have shown let us possess one world Each hath one, and is one. My face in thine eye, thine in mine appears, And true plain hearts do in the faces rest. Where can we find two better hemispheres, Without sharp north, without declining west? Whatever dies was not mixed equally. If our two loves be one, or thou and I love so alike that none can slacken, none can die. You're probably hearing all the themes that I was, hopefully, uh, the themes that I was talking about. Exploration and, again, the the heavens keep returning uh, because they're out of joint. And what can be known is is the love of these two people, um, and there's something there's something to that. I mean, there's something pretty Christian to that too. Uh, but I won't push that point yet because I have more that I want to read. The next poem. Let me see. The next poem I'm going to read is is from his religious poetry. So this is a little bit later in his, in his uh, writing career. I mean, it's not a career. I mean, these poems were written down and handed around by manuscript to friends. <laughs> so it's, it's not the way we think of like, oh, he's a writer, you know. Um, it wasn't this professionalized thing. Um, someone like Ben... Johnson actually tries to professionalize it but even Shakespeare is not typically selling sort of bound copies of his plays until quite a bit later when when people start to think man maybe a writer can be a serious thing so done writing his religious poetry it's still it's not like widely known or published it's it's pretty personal stuff and it does it does it does sort of presage his conversion it is before his conversion, which I think lends an authenticity to it, uh, lends an authenticity to his conversion. Um, for example, that is um, a pretty strong vote in his favor as not being merely a mercenary um, in order to get a good job as an Anglican priest. Um, so I'll read a couple of the religious poems here. Oh, and this one's lovely. This is called a hymn to God the Father, and he does a, a play on his last name. Um, which you'll hear um, but which is also it's also pretty heavy a hymn to God the Father Wilt thou forgive that sin where I begun which was my sin though it were done before Wilt thou forgive that sin through which I run and do run still Though still I do deplore. When thou hast done, thou hast not done, for I have more. Wilt thou forgive that sin which I have won others to sin, and made my sin their door? Wilt thou forgive that sin which I did shun a year or two, but wallowed in a score? When thou hast done, thou hast not done i have more i have a sin of fear that when i have spun my last thread i shall perish on the shore but swear by thyself that at my death thy son shall shine as he shines now and heretofore and having done that thou hast done i fear no more the next thing i want to read is a Is a selection from his prose writing, actually. Um, It's from a remarkable little volume called Devotion Upon Emergent Occasions. And he wrote it uh, after an incredibly severe bout with typhus, which is like a horrible sort of recurring fever that uh, often killed people. And he he composed this, uh, it's just incredible... I mean, it was truly a devotional. Um, I I wish to God people would read this devotional instead of others like, you know, Jesus Calling or whatever whatever is popular right now because just the profundity of of a devotional like this um, written when someone is potentially on their deathbed suffering through extraordinary illness. But during the season of his life, this is in 1623. Um, so he's 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 in the last sort of decade of his life, really, um, as a as the dean of St. Paul's, as an Anglican priest, as as a pastor, as someone who is regularly preaching and teaching God's people, and and living in a genuine holy life, uh, seeking the Lord above all else. Um, and I really do, as I've said before, take his conversion uh, seriously because I've read so many of his sermons and. As someone who who writes sermons, you know, I I don't know. I, I just, I don't know. I love this guy. I just I just really love this guy a lot. Um, but he wrote this incredible volume. You should get it. It isn't easy, but it is worth everything of your time. And it's called Devotions Upon Emergent Occasions. And I'm going to read a selection from that will be recognizable to you. So um, just to make it, you know, a little more accessible than maybe some of the Sixteenth or seventeenth century style might sound. Um, this is a selection from which we get the phrase, or at least um, the the title, or the or the aphorism, however you want to get it. This is this is where Dunn writes, um, "For whom the bell tolls," which you know becomes a, a title of a famous novel, and and it becomes a becomes a well known phrase. Um, Do not ask for whom the bell tolls; the bell tolls for thee. And so I'm going to read a selection from that part of this devotional from which that line originates and that idea originates, that concept originates here. Um, So you can get a sense of of what it's like when he just writes prose. Prose is just sort of regular paragraphs, right, regular sentences, not in a poetical form of stanzas and, um, you know... um, Yeah, I don't need to tell you any more than that. Um, Prose is regular. Regular (laughs) writing. Regular writing for regular folk. Um, But this is done uh, writing uh, in devotions upon emergent occasions during uh, and following a sickness that almost led to his death. Perchance he for whom this bell tolls may be so ill. Okay, I have to so the scene is he's literally in his room (laughs) sorry he's literally in his room he's on his deathbed he's very very sick and he's not uh, mobile and so he's regularly being visited by doctors and everything like that but to get fresh air and fresh light the 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 window is open right Um, so that he can hear people going about in the streets and feel like connected to reality i think of john milton you know sort of in his blindness and some of the lines that um, I explored in last season's um, podcast uh, through Milton, some of Milton's poetry in Paradise Lost. The human face divine, he, he can almost hear out the window the sound of chatter in people's lives, but he can't see them. Well, it's, it's not dissimilar from Dunn here on his sickbed, unable to see or interact with people, but hearing the life outside the window, as it were. And, and in that moment, or in one of those kinds of moments, he hears the church bells, And he hears them, you know, tolling, and and he recognizes the kinds of bells they are. He writes this. Perchance he for whom this bell tolls may be so ill as that he knows not it tolls for him. And perchance I may think myself so much better than I am as that they who are about me and see my state may have caused it to toll for me. And I know not that. The church is Catholic, universal. So are all her actions. All that she does belongs to all. When she baptizes a child, that action concerns me. For that child is thereby connected to that body, which is my head too, and engrafted into that body whereof I am a member. And when she buries a man, that action concerns me. All mankind is of one author and is one volume. When one man dies, one chapter is not torn out of the book, but translated into a better language, and every chapter must be so translated. God employs several translators. Some pieces are translated by age, some by sickness, some by war, some by justice. But God's hand is in every translation. And his hand shall bind up all our scattered leaves, again for that library, where every book shall lie open to one another. As therefore... The bell that rings to a sermon calls not upon the preacher only, but upon the congregation to come. So this bell calls us all. But how much more me, who am brought so near the door by this sickness. There was a contention as far as a suit in which both piety and dignity, religion and estimation were mingled, which of the religious orders should ring to prayers first in the morning. And it was determined that they should ring first that rose earliest. If we understand aright the dignity of this bell that tolls for our evening prayer, we would be glad to make it ours by rising early in that application, that it might be ours as well as his, whose indeed it is, the bell doth toll for him that thinks it doth. And though it intermit again, yet from that minute that this occasion wrought upon him, he is united to God, who casts not up his eye to the sun when it rises, But who takes off his eye from a comet when that breaks out? Who bends not his ear to any bell which upon any occasion rings? But who can remove it from that bell which is passing a piece of himself out of this world? No man is an island, entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. If a clod be washed away by the sea, Europe is the less, as well as if a promontory were, as well as if a manner of thy friends or of thine own were. Any man's death diminishes me, because I am involved in mankind, and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. Neither can we call this a begging of misery or a borrowing of misery, as though we were not miserable enough of ourselves, but must fetch in more from the next house, in taking upon us the misery of our neighbors. Truly, it were an excusable covetousness if we did. For affliction is a treasure, and scarce any, and scarce any man hath enough of it. No man hath affliction enough that is not matured and ripened by it and made fit for God by that affliction. If a man carry treasure in bullion or in a wedge of gold and have none coined into current money, his treasure will not defray him as he travels. Tribulation is treasure in the nature of it. But it is not current money in the use of it, except we get nearer and nearer our home. Heaven, by it. Another man may be sick too, and sick to death. And this affliction may lie in his bowels as gold in a mine, and be of no use to him. But this bell that tells me of his affliction digs out and applies that gold to me. If by this consideration of another's danger... I take mine own into contemplation and so secure myself by making my recourse to my God who is our only security. I mean, is there a more true word for the age of COVID-19? 225,000 lives lost and yet we have almost a supernatural capacity to dissociate ourselves from other people's deaths then would say how could you how could you every person's suffering is something we share in and should drive us to contemplation about the shattered nature of a world that had rejected its God and, and of our own souls. It should drive us on our faces before God, pleading for mercy and seeking his grace and walking with him in love. and It should change us, even if the bell tolls 225,000 times more than normal. It should especially change us, humble us, transform us, lead us into depths of contemplation and worship and devotion and obedience, deeper and truer, what does he say, mature and riper than if we were not connected to one, an- to one another or if we were not going through such a difficult moment. I think that's, that's a prayer. That's a prayer right there is that this, this devotion would be ours in a time like this. I love, I love Dear Old Dunn, and um, I hope that you will, you will read um, his poetry. I do think devotions upon Emergent occasions is very readable, and I hope I made that somewhat uh, thinkable to you um, by that reading. I really think that's the kind of thing you could pick up. There's a it's always in print. There's a nice, um, a nice paperback edition of this um, in the I forget what the series is, but it would be easy to find for maybe ten to twelve dollars, maybe fifteen. But my gosh, fifteen bucks! What's that? I don't know, three lattes or something. Um, I would really encourage anyone listening to this to pick up Devotions Upon Emergent Occasions, and even if it's just reading it occasionally just a a paragraph or two um i understand it can feel like a lot but just reading a paragraph or two as like a morning or an evening devotion or like as you're going to bed you know before you go to bed um i don't know it's just been for years now um for years it's been such a blessing to me um to have to have done (laughs) Thou hast done (laughs) Um, I have to I can't end though without a story Um, so when I was at I went to the Modern Language Association conference which is the big the big MLA conference um, which is where all the uh, the hopeful PhDs and all the professors and all the researchers uh, everyone in the land of English literature um, can, <laughs> congeals, is not the best way, um, converges on a location, you know, usually in a major city. So this was in Philadelphia a few years ago. And um, you know, there's just a thousand presentations and a thousand papers. And you, you basically just like, like go through the, the, the program for three or four days of this conference and you pick out the things you really want to hear. And so anytime I saw some of my favorite people, Jeremy Taylor, John Donne, Thomas Brown, um, there was there's hardly ever much on Thomas Brown, which, um, we'll get to another day, but, but either way, there was a couple on, on, on done. And so I was like, okay, I gotta get, I gotta get to those, you know? And then, uh, and I was actually giving, um, a paper, uh, as well. And so, so I had to kind of manage my schedule in, in a certain way, but it was fun. It was fun to be able to participate. It was fun to do all sorts of things, um, there. And, uh, and so I went to this, I went to a couple of them and, um, and they were they were all right. One of them was all right. It was it was it was fine. It wasn't it wasn't great, but it was it was fine. It was just good to hear the poetry. It was just good to hear people read the poetry out loud. And then I went to this other one. This is like on the last day, and there's this old school, old school professor gets up, and he's like he's like I can tell he's like, you know, a serious person. He's like you know he's a serious like done scholar or whatever, and he's like kind of like calmly talking, but he's got this deep voice, you know, and and he's like, you know, Dunn's often misread, you know, and I'm like, yeah, Dunn's often misread, sure, and uh, and then he goes on to make an argument about, like, no, he's like misread, like, (laughs) like, like, auditorially, like, (laughs) orally misread, right, like, literally misread, (laughs) like, the way people read him is wrong, Like, the way they read the syllables out loud is wrong. And he was arguing for, you know, a famous phrase in Dunn, is masculine persuasive force, right, that his poetry is just like incredibly punchy and strong, and, you know, I mean, really, it's like you have to fight with it just to like, you know, understand, to read it, whatever. And he was making this case that many of Dunn's poems, and he said, especially the religious poetry, really needed to be read at a volume that would scare people but if you really studied Dunn's uh, language and if you really studied his syllables and if you really studied what he's doing you know the the the, the sonic nature of of what he's doing you, know, you would understand that that almost nobody reads these correctly you know um, and so he's, he's like making this you know this interesting argument about Everybody. and there's people in the room who had like just been reading some of Dunn's poetry out loud, and it was like, oh, I guess I guess you did that wrong, you know. Um, and so, and so, he, so he like gathers himself, and 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 he says, okay, I'm gonna read, you know, famous Dunn poems called "Battered My Heart, Three Person God." And, he, and he's like, it's like he breathes in like, like, I don't know, like a cloud, like inhaling, like, (laughs) and, and all of a sudden at a level, I can't, I can't explain to you. This is like a room full of usually older, but I mean, not all many older professors. Right. So like, I've been in rooms in which like, you know, people were like asleep in the corners, you know, because these papers can be dull and it can be a monotonous thing, you know, like and you've been to hundreds of these things and it's for four days. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. Um, so in the room, I mean this is what was so great. In the room there was a guy to my front and right, and he he was an older professor and I was I was pretty sure he had fallen asleep, you know, and this guy was like the third or fourth paper in a row. So it's like forty five minutes. The room's a little warm, you know. <laughs> it was after breakfast you know uh, they served a breakfast so i'm like this guy's like metabolizing over here and i could tell i could could tell he had fallen asleep okay and i thought i think i always think that's funny you know like oh my gosh someone's just straight straight sleeping right now um and all these uh, eager phds hoping to get a job you know are like all you know their posture they're leading on the edge of their seats and they they want to ask a question they want everyone to notice them you know like it was like the contrast is extraordinary like tenure and not tenure (laughs) Tenure is like a sleep in the corner. Not tenure, desperate to not just be an adjunct your whole life is like <laughs> wishing you could rush the mic and start talking yourself, you know? So this guy had fallen asleep, and then let me go back to the podium. And at the podium, this guy gathers himself, and he roars this poem. I mean, I, I've never heard anything like this in my life. He goes, <laughs> He goes, batter my heart he starts sh- sh- shouting in the loudest voice I've ever heard at anything because he's like right up on the mic as well and he doesn't just like and he is so going for it so <laughs> so as soon as he does that the guy to my front and right this older professor who's clearly fallen asleep he literally <gasps> It was, like, it, was like he, it was like he had been shocked by a defibrillator. Like, it was seriously like someone had revived him from the dead, and I thought he was having a heart attack as he was being... <gasps> he just... The way his body just jolted up, right? And his mouth open with his eyes. <laughs> This guy is shouting so loud, and he doesn't give up after the first line. He doesn't like call, he doesn't settle down into the poem. He's like trying to convince us, you know, that the only way to read Dunn's religious poetry is to shout it (laughs) like like someone who is like, and and, you know, he had an interesting argument like someone who is losing their faith. And many of the poems really do sound like that. So, like, I dug part of what he was saying, but it was still not so. It was so not so to have him all the way up on the mic. There's distortion. The mic can't handle him. Butter my heart. He's... <gasps> the guy next to me is like having a, a revival and a heart attack and death at the same moment. Like so many things are happening. He's three or four, five, six lines into this roaring of this, this religious <laughs> poem by John Donne and and someone at the back of the of the conference room it's like conference room was like 100 people in it at the back of the conference room the door bursts open and and a british man um, with a great british voice goes "excuse me excuse me" literally just interrupts everything stops him and goes "excuse me this cannot be" <laughs> This cannot be. (laughs) He, this guy was incensed. And it turned out he was, they were in the conference room next to us. Because MLA is huge. There's conference rooms everywhere full of people giving papers. So this guy was a moderator, professor moderating a panel next in the room right next to us. You know, this is like the whatever, you know, fancy hotel. But all they have is those like... You know, those divider walls that you can fold and unfold. And so he like rushes into the room and just stops everything, shouting himself, just saying, This cannot be. Like, what are you doing? This is insane. And everyone in the conference room next to us, which we can't see, is like it was like they literally just stopped. Like they couldn't they couldn't process the volume that was coming through the wall. And so everything just just blew up with this guy's like reading. But what was so amazing was this was the whole point of the guy's paper. Was that, was that everyone reads this these poems wrong, and the only way to read them right is by roaring them as though you are losing grip of your own salvation you know i mean like it was fascinating it was an interesting argument but it was a it was a sonic argument and and the guy didn't know it was like it was like he came back out of a trance like the guy who had been roaring and his you know cuz his isn't speaking voice is actually kind of quiet and oh oh um, uh, well um uh excuse, uh excuse me um uh and the other guy, like, no explanation, wasn't asking, like can, you, like, can you explain, like, what just happened here? Why are you yelling? Like, he just comes in and just, this cannot be. This is, you have to stop. <laughs> the guy's like, oh, 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 like, comes to himself, you know, like, comes down from wherever he was. And it's like, oh, um, okay, um, hmm, well, that's interesting. And he's just, like, mumbling to himself. And then the British guy, like, just furious this British guy you know like barges back out of the room because he's got to go back into his conference room <laughs> and try to restore like sanity or whatever so then our guy like he just gives this entire paper on why it has to be read at this sonic register or else it's being misunderstood <laughs> and it's like this you know and uh, and so now I mean everybody is just on like on the edge of their seat like what's this guy gonna do like is he gonna read it quietly and betray like everything he wrote about (laughs) it was just like i mean it it was like the nerdiest like wonderful sort of showdown ever and and the guy to be fair like the guy the guy couldn't help it he just couldn't help himself he tries so hard he tries so hard to dial it down and and he ended up like (laughs) he ended up going almost back up and you could see people on the panel like just must must move the microphone back because everyone's afraid the British guy is like about to burst in again and and it turns out he was about to burst in again um, it was just it was an extraordinary moment I got a guy you know having a having a, a, a come to Jesus moment out of a out of a deep reverie on my right <laughs> I got a British guy coming in just like faulty towers like just John Cleese like this cannot be. whatever's happening needs to stop you horrible people and then he just walks out and then I have this this poor I don't know even poor but I just felt like like bad for the guy he didn't know what to do because he had to finish shouting the poem, which is what he went to do and the British guy came back and yelled at us again it was an incredible moment uh, in my in my uh, conference going English poetry life. Uh, anyways, I don't know. I love that. I love that moment. I couldn't I couldn't wait to tell people about that moment. And then I didn't even know how to tell because I was like, well, nobody cares that you had <laughs> at a conference for people talk about poetry. Anyway, so I haven't gotten to tell that story many times. So there you go. Um, I love Dunn. He is talking about absolutely everything, and ultimately, he, especially in his later stuff, is talking about the Lord in ways that uh, ministered to me in a, in in ex- extraordinary ways that I know would also minister to anybody. Um, but he also had a an a absolutely wicked sense of humor, and I just I know he would have been so thrilled by everything that happened at that particular moment in the conference. So, so I commend to you uh, the English poet John Donne. Um, all his stuff is available for free online, but uh, do pick up Devotions Upon Emergent Occasions. You will not be sorry that you did, even if you have to go slow and take just little little bites with a cup of coffee. Um, I know it will, it will richly bless you. I, I'm confident of that. Um, so thank you. Thank you for listening. I, I hope that this will encourage you to spend a little more time um, with dear old Don.